Our scripture today is found in Romans chapter 8, verses 12 to 17. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is the word of the Lord. Today we're going to pick up where we left off last week. So I told you last time that we're doing a short four-part series. Uh, my last four weeks with you at Liberty, my last chance uh, to give you a charge or a commission or what I said last week was a prayer to you. And, and I'm using Romans 8, this chapter about the immeasurable freedom we have in Christ's spirit to do so. And... Um, my prayer last week, as you'll recall, those of you who are with us, is, was that you would see yourselves as um, having the Spirit present with you. So in the coming weeks ahead, you would know more and more that the Spirit is here, the Spirit is alive, the Spirit is moving, the Spirit is active in your hearts. And today my prayer is this. It's that you would see yourselves not only as filled with the Spirit... But in having that spirit, you would see yourselves as sons and daughters of the living God. You would see yourselves more and more in the coming weeks as children of God. So it's not only this um, powerful force that we're talking about that's at work within you, but it's a powerful force that draws you in to a close and intimate relationship with the creator of the universe, the redeemer of his people, the savior of of your souls. So that's where we're headed, and we're going to look at Romans 8, um, verses 12 through 17 that Sarah just read. Uh, Fairly recently, uh, Julie and I finally got a chance to watch the movie The Help, and I'm assuming many of you guys have either seen it or have read the book. So we had to wait for Netflix to send it to us for like six months. So I'm assuming that everybody's seen it because everyone else was watching it before we got to. And... um, Uh, The movie is basically depicting the lives of black maids deep in the South, in Jackson, Mississippi, during the 1960s, when racial tensions are high, and they're working for um, wealthy white families um, in Jackson, there in Jackson, Mississippi. And I mean, really, they're they're more than maids. I mean, have you guys all seen this? They cook. They clean, they raise the children. Um, There's not anything that they don't do. They're like sort of there at the beck and call, all while having to endure basically the hypocrisy and racism of their employers who are are treating them um, very poorly. And here's what struck me as interesting um, about these women as I was watching this movie. It's how, basically, for those of you who haven't seen the movie, what it's about is a woman, a a young white writer, who comes and asks each of these black women to tell their story. And then she sits with them in their homes, and they start to unfold what life is really like here in Jackson, Mississippi in the 1960s. And um, here's what I noticed as I was watching the movie. 
It's how different these women acted when they were at home when compared to how they acted when they were at work. So when they're at work, they were guarded, they were quiet, they were fearful, they were silent, they were um, bending over backwards to appease the white women that they were working for and doing everything that they could. They were, um, they were acting like servants, they were servile. But when you finally got them home, when you finally got them to open up a little bit and tell their story, which they were very afraid to do at first, what happened is their entire behavior changed. They started to open up. They started to get a little bit more relaxed. They started to enjoy themselves. They started to express real sorrow at loss that had happened to them in their lives. They started to express real joy and good humor, joking and laughing and expressing all the full range of human emotions. They started at home to act more free than they did when they were at work and they were acting bound and fearful and afraid. And in, in, in a similar way, when you go to work for sin, so that's the metaphor that Paul was using last week, sin was your master, now Jesus Christ is your master. If you are going to work for sin and submitting to it, allowing it to be your boss and to tell you what to do, if you are what Paul says in verse 12, a debtor to the flesh, a number of things happen. Okay, a number of things happen. Number one, you, you start to act more guarded and you start to act more defensive. Basically, if things aren't right in your relationship with God and you can't um, get around that fact and it's haunting you and it's plaguing you, you have to find ways to sort of um, justify your behavior. You have to find ways to explain your behavior. You start to find ways to kind of defend yourselves and you have a posture of being guarded and defensive both in your relationship with him and in your relationship with those who are around you. Um, think of it as, as walls starting to go up, okay? The second thing that happens is you, you live in fear. And some of you today might, char- might characterize yourselves as living in fear. What if someone finds out I am struggling with this sin? I can't possibly, uh, I can't possibly conceive of opening up or confessing or telling somebody else what happens if I get exposed, and, you know, what could really happen there is you can kind of start to live a double life. You know what I mean? You can have all of these behaviors and things that you're doing on one side that no one knows about, but you have um, a whole other set of behaviors that you're doing um, out in the open and in public. And here's the third thing that happens. The pressure to solve these problems on your own, to be your own savior, to do things in your own strength, is only going to lead you to trying harder, to working to perform, to adjusting your external behavior rather than doing what we talked about last week, seeing your need, seeing your need and receiving the Spirit by faith. So you begin to see God not as a loving Father, but as a cruel taskmaster. And that's because you're living according to the flesh. And, don't, and many, many people have that conception of Christianity anyway. So if you're not a Christian here today, you may have the conception of Christianity that it is like being one of those black servants 
maids in a house in Jackson, Mississippi, where you are in, in fear and you're guarded and you're defensive and you have to worry about saying this or not saying that. But what Paul is saying is, no, becoming a Christian is like going home. Becoming a Christian is becoming the human you were designed to be. Becoming a Christian is opening up. It is relaxing. It is entering into God's presence. It is taking him as your father and him receiving you as a son into his family, into a home where you can bring everything to him. You can bring anything to him and watch him transform you. And in fact, the the biblical picture here is a picture of a God, I think of the picture of the prodigal son, who is like an old man sweeping up his robes, running to embrace you, running to grab you and to take you and to bring you into his family. And because God receives you as sons, because he receives you as a child, the call today is to see yourselves as children of God who set aside your fears and walk in freedom. Okay, so the point that Paul is clearly making in this, in this uh, we have a shorter passage today, it's verse 12 through 17, and the point that he is making is that you are sons of God should you be accepted on account of Christ and receive the Spirit into, into God's family. Look at verse 14, he says, All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. But notice, I want you to notice they're not um, natural-born sons. Look at verse 16, uh, 15. They have received the spirit of adoption as sons. And again in verse 16, he makes the same point. He says, we are children of God. So what I want to do today is I'm basically going to divide the sermon into half. So instead of the usual three points, we're going to have two. But I'm going to sneak all sorts of subpoints in. There's like 95 subpoints, <laughs> so so hang on. <laughs> but um, the two main points are this: What does it mean to be an ad- adopted as a son of God? What does it mean to be adopted as a son of God? And that's going to take most of our time. And then the second thing is: Are have are you acting like an adopted son of God? Or if you are not a Christian, you can ask yourself the question: Can I become an adopted son of God? reconciled to the Heavenly Father who created me. So keep those two things in the back of your mind. Okay, here's what I want to do. First of all, I want to look at what it looks like to be a son. I want to look at what it looks like to be adopted. And then I want to look at what it looks like to be adopted as a son of God. So we're going to follow, like, really systematically, and things are going to look, they're, they're going to feel a little repetitive. But just hang with me, and I think we'll get there. Okay? You guys with me? Good. Good. <laughs> Okay, sons. Now, when I think of sons, I can think of at least six things. So here's where I'm sneaking all those points in. This is a pastor's trick to make a sub-point have six points. Okay, what is a son? What does it mean to be a son? Six things. Number one, and so this, this really, I, don't, I never call people to take notes or anything, but it may be helpful to write some things down. Um, sons have, number one, identity. They have an identity in relation to the father. So think about it. In, in our culture, typically, if you were a son, what you do is you take on the last name of your father. 
So you are identified as relating to him. You are known or recognized as belonging to that person or having some part in that person. In fact, being recognized is a whole part of it. You're at a family reunion and some old guy comes up and puts his arm around you, you know, who you've never seen before. And he's grabbing you, you know, you'll look just like your father. <laughs> you know, and you're like, well, <laughs> you're giving me the creeps. But you have been recognized because you have an identity in relationship to who your father is. You look just like your dad. And I think in our culture and at Liberty, you know, we talk a lot about identity and everybody's seeking for identity and finding their identity in one thing or another. And I think maybe one of the reasons like 21st century Americans do that so much is because we don't place much stock in family identity. You know what I mean? Other cultures in the history of the world have placed more stock in finding your identity in a family. We're kind of isolated, independent, alone. And I think that's one of the reasons there's kind of a barrier for us to understand how important this is. Two, sons have status. So you not only have an identity, but you have status, particularly in the ancient Near East. Sons were important because the family's wealth was passed to them. And the family's land was passed to them. And if you go to a culture like Afghanistan today, and you see, you know, a place where women don't have very high status, it's essential and important for those women to have a husband because that's the person who they relate to the society through. It's essential for them to have a son because the son, again, could grow up to help and provide and protect. And life without that the death of a son in that culture is, is devastating. It's destructive. It's impossible. Okay, number three. So sons have an identity. They have a status. They also have privileges and resources. So you can go to your dad and ask him if you can borrow his car. And he'll say sure, or he might say no, depending on, you know, what type of father you have, that'll be important. But the key here is you wouldn't go to the next door neighbor and his dad and say, hey, dude, can I borrow your car? You go to your father because he's the one that you have proximity to. He's the one who has the resources and you have special privileges because you are present with him. So for, that leads us to the fourth thing. Sons have privileges and resources because they have a relational intimacy with their father. So it's not only just about identity. It's not only just about status. It's about closeness. It's about access. They live with their fathers. They are near to their fathers and therefore have closeness and can ask for things and can come to him and can receive those things that he has for them. Number five, sons are accepted for who they are and belong to the family. And what I'm talking about here is an ideal picture of what sons should be. Okay, so I understand that some of us come from um, families in which you were not accepted, you did not belong, you were not received, and that's part of the point. Just knowing the experience of that has you longing for something more that can be found only in God, the true Heavenly Father. So um, Julie and I, we were visiting Asheville this week, this weekend, and we were um, looking for houses. And it was like, you know, we were there for 24 hours, so you're just being like one house after another. But we stayed with some folks who we don't know very well. We're getting to know them, but we don't know them. And when you're visiting or staying with somebody else, you have to sort of be on your best behavior. 
you know, especially in the South. <laughs> so, you know, you're very concerned with, or, or at least I am, I'm very concerned with what I'm saying, how I'm coming across, making the bed neatly, putting things back, taking care of what happens. I don't just take anything for granted. You know what I mean? But I was thinking about this as I was working on the sermon. When I go home for vacation, like at Thanksgiving or Christmas, it's kind of the opposite. You know, I throw open the door, I run in, flip on the TV, you know, lie down on the couch, prop my feet up, start to complain. You know, there's nothing guarded. I'm just like, oh, dad, the traffic was terrible. And my dad loves that because he loves, you know, complaining about traffic. He, <laughs> he lives in a town of like 1,500 people. And he still complains about the traffic. <laughs> He's like, that stoplight on 4th Street is terrible. <laughs> I'm like, Dad, there's four cars in the whole place. You know, I go through the kitchen and I'm like rummaging for cookies. So when I'm visiting like, as a guest, can I please have a sip of water? <laughs> you know what I mean? But when I'm home, I'm like, Mom, where are the cookies? You didn't make any cookies. What's wrong with you? You, you know, there's like this, this closeness that comes. And that's what I mean by being accepted or belonging. You're in, in a place where you feel more or less comfortable, even if you don't have the best relationship in the world with your family. It's, the, the point is a belonging and acceptance comes from being in a family. And all these things mean that six... Sons, and this is the center, this is the point, this is the end, this is what um, Paul is saying in these verses. Sons have confidence. Sons have confidence because of their status, because of their resources, because of their privileges, because they are accepted and belong. They have confidence. Okay, now, but more is going on. Okay, more is going on here because we're not only sons. He says you are adopted as sons. And if you run through that list of six things again, what it looks like not only to be a natural born son, but to be an adopted son, a child of God is powerful. It adds another layer of meaning because if you're adopted, you receive something that you didn't naturally deserve, that you didn't naturally earn, that wasn't yours to have. You were lost and alone and rejected, but then these gifts were thrust upon you, offered to you, and you were invited in. So think about it. You, you, you have a new identity. That means if you have an adopted identity, those who were once ignored, those who were passed over, those who were, like, never called on in class, <laughs> you know, those who didn't speak up, who were unseen and who were hidden, have now been recognized. You've now been called on. You've now been chosen. You've now been given something that you didn't have before. You mean something. You matter. You have a new identity. You also have a status. That means people who were poor, who were forgotten, who were insignificant nobodies have now become somebody's. So it's not only that you are somebody, but in being adopted, you have become somebody where before you were not. And you used to have nothing. You were those who, who had to beg and had to borrow and had to steal, but now you have an endless supply of resources. And we could just list illustration after illustration. Any movie you've ever seen about an orphan who gets adopted teaches this point. So you might think of like Annie. My kids were watching Annie the other day. And the only thing I could ever remember about Annie is, you know, when she's climbing that crazy bridge and why did she go up it? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like totally ridiculous. But Annie 
is an orphan, she's alone, she's beaten up by Carol Burnett, all those things are happening, but then she gets received into this opulent house, Daddy Warbuck's house. Suddenly she has, you know, the crazy magician Punjab who can do things for her. Suddenly she has maids everywhere who can do things for her. And she has this father who says, everything that I have I'm giving to you. Everything that I have I'm giving away. Um, another thing I couldn't help thinking about all week was the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. <laughs> so I just dated myself. Everyone who laughed is like exactly my age and used to watch that every, you know, Monday night or whatever, whenever it came on. So the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air was Will Smith. And do you remember the song? He's from West Philly. <laughs> right? <laughs> what point are they making about West Philly? He had nothing, you know. It was the, it was the ghetto. <laughs> it was, it, you know, it was a terrible life. He's on the street, do you remember? He's, like, spray-painting things, and then he uses it as deodorant. And then um, you all remember this. Go, you can go YouTube. Uh, look at it later on YouTube. Um, and then, but he moves to Bel Air. He moves to the most sort of like lavish and opulent place you could possibly imagine in America. He's accepted by Uncle Phil. Is it Phil? Does anybody remember? You know, and he's like, ah, oh, Uncle Phil. And then he has, you know, he has to deal with kind of the annoying relationships, but he has the car, he has the lifestyle, he has the schooling, he has the education, everything that he couldn't apparently find in West Philly. Although I don't think West Philly is so bad. <laughs> That's what it means to have resources. And we could just list, again, illustration after illustration um, that show these things. You see, those who, who, who were alone now have a relationship. They have intimacy. They have that person that they can talk to, that person that they can turn to, a person that they can trust and ask questions of and be received by. And it means also that those who were rejected have now been accepted and they now belong. So again, all of those things have been given, but they're heightened because they, weren't, they didn't have them to start out with. Um, several months ago, when Steve Jobs died, I heard his um, biographer um, on NPR and he was talking about Steve Jobs. The biographer's name was uh, Walter Isaacson. Did you guys read that? And uh, it, it was on Fresh Air. I think Terry Gross was interviewing him. And one of the things that Walter Isaacson said, and I guess it's in the book early on, is that Steve Jobs, who was an orphan, got adopted. And he always remembered this moment when he was really young. He was about six. And he goes outside. And some of the kids say, oh, you were adopted? That means your parents didn't love you. You were rejected. You, you know, you didn't have uh, any place here in this world. And he kind of comes running in, you know, and says to his parents, hey, you know, these guys said I'm rejected. I don't have a place. And they say no. His adopted parents say no. We chose you. You are special. We pulled you out of something, and you are ours. And apparently for Steve Jobs, that gave him the idea that he was special. You know, for the rest of his life, he kind of clings to that moment. It had significance on him. And his self-perception, again, he had confidence, confidence of knowing he was adopted and adopted as a son. Okay, but that's still not all. See how we're building here? This is what sons are like and what sons have. This is what adopted sons are like and what adopted sons have. But who are you adopted of? 
Who are you adopted of? Paul claims you are not only sons, but sons of the living God. So this is not, listen, this is not some feel-good pop psychology. This is, this is the word of truth. This is God himself saying through an actual set of real historical events, namely the, the, the death and crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the pouring out of his spirit, you have now been received God himself is acting with power. He's acting with authority to adopt you, to take you as his own. And yes, that happened when the Spirit poured out upon the church in Pentecost, which we talked about about a year ago. But it also happens when you receive him and rest upon him by faith alone. That moment, that moment when you come to him, admitting your need and receive his Spirit He loves you, and he takes you who were an orphan, and he makes you his son. He makes you into his son. And these are all the things he's giving you. There's so many things. There's too many things to to list. He's giving you a new identity. He's giving you a new identity. What identity do you now have? You have Christ's righteousness. Wait, I didn't feel very righteous. You are righteous. You are righteous. There is no condemnation in Christ because when God looks at you, he sees Jesus, Jesus on a cross taking on the wrath for sin. So there cannot be any more condemnation. There can't be condemnation because when he looks at you, he sees you as his son and he's putting his spirit inside you. And he's bringing other Christians around you into this redeemed community. And he is breaking. This is what last week was all about. He is breaking the old habits. He is breaking the old old patterns. He is breaking the hold that sin once had on you. Walk out of the prison door. The door is wide open. Walk out of the door. You are free because you are a son of the living God who created you. He's giving you a new status. That's all that Romans 8, 1 through 11 was about. You were a slave, but now you are free. You were in the flesh, but now you're in the spirit. You were a debtor. You were a debtor. You owed big time, but now you don't owe sin anything anymore. As a matter of fact, you have the authority to tell it to leave you alone. Leave me alone. Stop beating me up. You don't have authority here anymore. I have a new identity. I have a new status. And you know what? I have resources. I have so many resources. Look at verse 17. If you are children, then you are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. That means that I I don't know how else to explain this, but you get what Christ got. You get what Jesus got. Jesus is offering you what he had in the Father. And if you read like Ephesians 1, you just get this litany of things. It says you have been chosen. It says you, you will receive all the blessings of God, holiness, grace, redemption, forgiveness of sins, wisdom, insight, hope. Everything you have ever been longing for is found there, not in those other places. Not in those other places. And he is receiving you and will give you a resurrection life that is guaranteed. It's not going to spoil or fade. It will not spoil because there is a promise of future glory. And as certain as Christ is in heaven now interceding for you. It's what he's doing. He is praying to the Father. Continue receiving these my sons. Continue receiving these my sons. As much as he is doing that, as real as the Spirit is within you, so you receive Christ's path of suffering and then glory. 
we'll talk about more, talk about that a little bit more later. And this is not abstract. That's what I'm trying to get you to kind of hold on to. This is not something you can, you can admit to intellectually. This is not something that is just a principle or an assertion or a proposition. The Spirit engages you. Look back. Look at verse 15. So that you cry out. You cry out, Father, Abba, something like Dad. You, you, you come to a very, you can't cry out. You, let's, let's do it this way. You can't remain disengaged and cry and cry out and throw yourself on the Father and say, you know, coming to a very real throne of grace, hear my prayer, hear my plea, let me speak to you, let me know you. you this is where you come with all of your emotions. You come with anger, you come with sorrow, you come with every experience you have ever felt. He's not stamping out emotions, he's saying, bring those things to me. I am here, I am near you, I am changing you, I am transforming you. And you bring specific, specific requests to your father because you know he hears you. See, in, in one way, when we're talking about sin, sometimes you can kind of think, you know, you, you can get so focused on sin that you're like, I'm trying not to sin. I'm trying not to sin. I'm tr- trying not to sin. Have you ever done that? Have you ever, like, looked at some pattern in your life and you try and you fail and you try and you fail and you try and you fail? But he's saying, Yes, you look and admit your need, but you also have to turn the other way. You have to worship. You have to come to me. You have to see me as present with you. Um, Tim Lane put it this way. He once said, you didn't worship your way into No, no, what does he say? You worshipped your way into sin. You have to worship your way out of sin. You wanted something more than God. And just obsessing and focusing on those things and beating yourself up up about them is not enough. You have to come close to Jesus. You have to come close to his spirit. You have to open yourself up to the Father and receive what he has in you. And there in his presence, the most amazing thing happens. You are accepted like you never have been before in your life. And if you feel lost, if you feel guilty, if you feel ashamed, if you don't know Christ, the offer is for an acceptance that you have never known. You know why? Because everything's laid bare. Everything's laid bare. You know, you, you come to him and you're exposed. These are my sins. I have turned against you. I have worshiped all sorts of other things. I have worshiped all sorts of other things. He erases the guilt and the shame, and the wrath is gone, and he receives you as his son. Think of the confidence that he grants you in him. Certainly, certainly there is no condemnation for those who will be found in Christ Jesus. He has set you free. Okay, that was all point one. <laughs> Did you see that? I, think, I really think there were about 18 points in there. Okay, pastors are tricky. They will they'll work in as many points as they can. Point two is much shorter. It's much shorter. But the question is this. Are you an adopted son? On the one hand, if you're not a Christian, ask yourself, have you received, uh, received Christ and rested upon him by faith alone? If you are a Christian, are you acting like a son? Are you acting like a daughter? Are you depending on yourself and filled with fear? 
or are you trusting in Christ and his freedom? And I think there's three specific ways that we can kind of apply these truths. Number one, number one, as sons and daughters have confidence in your fight against sin. Have confidence in your fight against sin. Look at verse um, 12 through 13 again. It reminds us that there is a fight, and it appears to be a fight to the death. It seems like it's, it's kill or be killed with this language here that says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And um, again, to kind of reiterate some of what we were saying last week, I think sometimes you, you may feel like you're playing whack-a-mole. You know what I mean? You're trapped in the sin. Um, you're fearing other people. You're seeking their approval. You're looking at pornography. You're um, lying, whatever, whatever the sin may be, and you continue trying to get it to stop. But it, like as soon as you hit one, like the other pops up. Do you, you know what I mean? Or, or maybe another analogy would be you're, you're, you're lost in, in the haunted house of your heart. Just as soon as you think, you know, what's a haunted house like? There's all sorts of secret hidden passages. There's all sorts of kind of like um, dark corridors. There's attics and basements. And our hearts are like that in, in, in Jeremiah 17:9, It says, the heart is deceitful above all things for whom there is no cure. Who can understand it? And you're kind of trying to find your way out of this heart. And as soon as you get to one place, you're, you know, like a ghost jumps out from the other side. And as soon as you get here, there's a vampire there. And as soon as you're over here, you know, you're, you're in this haunted house of your heart. But Paul says, you have the Spirit. Look at verse 13. It is by the Spirit that you put to death the deeds of the body. That means that the Spirit, like on whack-a-mole, kind of freezes in on one of those things and leaves it up so that you can hit it. Or um, a better analogy would be, it is like the flaming light that goes through corridor, and it goes through passage, and it goes through the attics and through the dungeons of your heart to shine light where light needs to be shined. And that's why we're talking so much about this exposure and talking about the need to admit your sin and to see your sin. And the call this week is to get very specific. Get very specific. Ask the Spirit. Ask the Spirit to shine light on your heart and show you your sin for what it really is. So ask yourself, and I mean, one of those things means just discerning what is what what's a sin and what's not. You know, usually it has to do with worshiping something more than you worship the true and living God, wanting to find your fulfillment and your acceptance and your status and your identity and some other thing. It, and that could be very good things. It could be your job. It can be your relationships. It can be other things. Putting those things first. But can you name specific sins? Are you confessing openly in an appropriate context, you know? Not yet, it doesn't have to be in front of 200 people, but in a small group of two or three, or with your husband, or with your wife, or with a close friend, or someone who's near to you. Are you repenting, or do you feel isolated and alone, and like you're the only one who's dealing with this thing? You're not. That's Satan's lie. Open some of those things up, and ask him just to show you one thing. Let the Spirit shine his light on your heart. Okay, number two. Sons also have confidence in their fight against fear. In their fight against fear. And I've already talked about turning to, turning to God rather than fixating on your sin, worshiping him, running to him, because when you're in his presence, those things and those sins 
melt away. Just remember that the Father is running to meet you. Remember that he is inviting you. Remember that you have nowhere to hide and nothing to offer, but allow him to cover you with his grace. So the question here is, um, is your faith real? Do you have an experiential reality of it on a day-to-day basis? Are you worshiping? Are you preaching the gospel to yourself? Are you resting in him or are you relying on your own power? Are you, you know what I mean? And I know, you know how hard it is to receive? I think part of the thing here is it's really hard to receive. And I know you guys have heard this analogy before, but my favorite analogy for this is simply um, when Julie and I were uh, making it through seminary, we were running out of money, and we had a family who offered to let us live with them. Do you, do you guys remember this story? And the Tuckers were insane because, like, what they did for us, they called us. We didn't ask them. They said, do you want to live with us? We said, sure. And they said, hey, take the whole upstairs. We're going to build a room in the basement and live there by ourselves. And your whole family can have this room and that room and that, the next room. You know what I mean? And then they built a fence around their backyard. I'm not kidding. They, they, they bought a swing set and put it up for our kids. And I was like, no, I can't receive that. Why? Pride, Right? That's a gift that I can never repay. It's hard to receive. It's hard to receive. But what Jesus is doing by his spirit is removing your pride. Crush that pride. Strip it away. Lay it bare. And open yourself up to him. Are you enjoying the Father? That means not only naming specific sins, but asking him specific requests. It was really interesting. This week when I was in Asheville, and one night I couldn't sleep, and, I, you know, we're, we had looked at all these houses, you know, like a dozen houses, and I'm, I'm praying, you know, Lord, what might I need to give up of my desires here? I want to live in this little cool part of town, but I'm not sure how practical it is. And, man, that green 1980s split-level house <laughs> is affordable, but it's just not cool. <laughs> it's probably the one I'll end up living in. <laughs> you know, and so I'm praying and praying, saying, Lord, help me lay down my desires. Help me lay down my desires. And this passage came to me, and I remember thinking, this is your father who wants to give good gifts to you. Start praying for specific requests. And so I was. I was like, Lord, you know, I think I really would like to have an extra bedroom. But you know what You know what happens? Suddenly, as I'm praying these specific requests, one, I felt just the presence of God. I was with him, talking to him like I knew him. But two, he started to change my requests. You know what I mean? It wasn't just a fourth bedroom, but suddenly it was like, what if there are lost, weak, needy people who I want to move in with you? Yeah. Jesus, do that. Let's go to Asheville and do that. You know what I mean? Let's open up our house and find some lost, needy people to live with us. That's awesome. Please, can I have a fourth bedroom, (laughs) which is more space than I need, right? Uh, Jesus, will you give me some neighbors who haven't heard the good news, the gospel of Jesus, so that I can tell them about you? Suddenly, you see what happens. You come close to Jesus. You have a real relationship with him. You're expressing real specific requests. And then he, 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 he shifts that request. And he starts to say, come, become more like me. Align yourself with my image. Be transformed. The presence of the Spirit is within you. 
And you know what's gone there? The whole point of that? Fear is gone. The fear is gone. Suddenly I'm excited about where I might be. I'm not worried about which house it's going to be or what's going to work out or how things are going to pan out. And finally, sons not only have confidence in their fight against sin, they not only have confidence in their fight against fear, they also have confidence even amid pain and suffering. And that's the last little bit that I can't skip because it's in the text. I can't skip because it's in the text. You see, this confidence that Christ is giving you by his spirit is a freedom from fear and suffering, but it is not the promise of an easy life. It's the promise of the only life worth living. Because you know what happens? You start to get transformed into the image of Jesus. And that pattern of Jesus' life is from suffering to glory. Suffering to glory. And so, you, yes, your fight against sin will hurt. Yes, laying yourself bare will hurt. Yes, repenting and confessing your sins will hurt. Yes, the Lord may bring crises into your life to reveal your weakness so that you will rely on him more because he loves you and cares for you and wants you to look more like Jesus Christ, the perfect human. He is inviting you, though, to throw yourself into it, to throw yourself upon him. to lose the slave mentality, to lose the orphan mentality, and to rest in the promises that he has made, that he will be good, that he will be faithful, that he will go with you, that he will transform you because Jesus humbled himself, suffered, died, but ultimately rose again. He ultimately rose again. So the final call, then, is to see yourselves not as the help, not as the orphan, not as the slave, not as the debtor, but as sons and daughters, children of the living God. Ask yourself today if you're seeing yourself in that way. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, which speaks to us and transforms us. It transforms me. I thank you that you have brought us into your family. And I pray that you will continue to renew us in freedom from fear. And even as we sang so many beautiful songs about your amazing and wonderful love, we felt your presence with us. Would you make your presence known on us, uh, to us, because we are weak and continually plagued with fear and condemnation and doubt. Remind us again of who you are and what you've done. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.